Okay, so uh, I'm a big football fan. I used to be a bigger football fan when I was a kid. Um, I had a, when I was a big Chicago Bears fan back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, one of them, but there was a player that I really liked. His name was Randall Cunningham. He played for the, you know, for the Philadelphia Eagles. He was a quarterback for them. And my Chicago Bears were bad most of the time, so I had to look for other things to cheer for. This guy was a dynamic and exciting player, I'll just tell you. You know, I thought about, you know, I had done some research for my sermon, some prep for my sermon. I was watching YouTube videos of this guy's highlights. And I was reminded just how, ma- how amazing he was. He was this athletic and great guy. And uh, I loved watching him. And what was, made him so exciting was, even when the things looked so bad and the play looked like it was going to die, this guy would still come up and make amazing plays. And so, you know, every week, this guy was like on the highlight reel because he was that good. His career was shortened, though. I don't know what happened to him. But he was good for those three years that he was there. Um, for those of you who don't know anything about football, you can put the slide up now. Uh, I'll explain a little bit about, about it. Uh, football is a sport not like baseball, soccer, or hockey, where it's continuous action. Football is like, you know, more methodical. It's more strategy. It's play by play. Stop and start, stop and start. And, you know, I need to put my glasses on so I can actually read my notes. Um, but the, the point of the game is that an offense has the ball. And in this, in this slide that you see, the, ze- the zeros, the circles, are the offense. The offense wants to march down the field. They want to score in the end zone. They want to get in there. They can pass the ball. They can throw the ball. They can you know, run the ball. That's the way they move it down the field. The defense, on the other hand, is trying to stop them from doing that. Okay? The offense, before they go, go make their play, they get into a huddle most of the time, and they discuss what play they're going to run. And they have lots of hundreds of plays, and each player on the field knows what those plays are. Right? And as you can see, this is a typical play. You'll see guys, there's guys, all the arrows are people that the quarterback, the quarterback's the one with the ball, he can throw to those guys, right? And on every play, they don't all, this is a very, very simple play, but in every play, the quarterback has a lot of options. You know, he can, you know, he can decide and he can look downfield. He has his primary target, but then he's got other ones and other ways that he can move the ball. What happens though sometimes if the defense is playing really well is that they block up all those options. So the quarterback goes to his first guy, can't find him, second one, third one. This is where Randall Cunningham was really good. Because even you know, what happens, when that happens, when all the people, all the options are gone, they call it a broken play. But Randall Cunningham in these situations could make things happen. Right? He would just he could, you know, dig, dug, he could move around, he would scramble around and find something or find somebody or run the ball down himself. And that was what made him exciting to watch, is that nothing was ever over. He never knew that he was down and out, right? Um, if you watch videos about him on YouTube, people talk about him. They'll just, they talk about how athletic he was. And he just had these natural abilities to run fast and to, to move and to get around things. But he, was, he trained and he practiced and he prepared, right? So when he came down, when the plays broke down, it wasn't like he was you know, just waiting around. He had thought about these things. He was prepared and he was, you know, in the play, he was looking and trying to see what options he could do, what spaces he could find. But he was ready to do it because he had spent all that time training and preparing, right? He was in shape, right? He could do it. And I think that our lives are like a broken play sometimes. Our lives are like a football play. All of us here have, have been disappointed. If you haven't been disappointed, don't wait. It's coming, you know, very soon. All of us have probably, we make plans. We think our lives are going to go a certain way. And it doesn't always happen that way. Um, you know, things like maybe with your career, you're schooling. Maybe you do a job you don't like. Maybe you didn't get into the school you don't like. Maybe you can't find a spouse. 
maybe you have a spouse and you're having a hard time with that person. Um, there's all sorts of ways. Maybe it's with your church. Church isn't exactly what you thought it would be, or then people aren't who you thought they should be. Maybe your finances aren't that great. There's a lot of ways and things that we plan, ways that we envision our lives, and things don't always turn out the way we want. They become broken plays. Proverbs 19.21 says this, Many are the plans of the, in the mind of man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. What this tells us is that even though we make plans, ultimately God is in control. Right? So as I start today, I want you to know, as a Christian, that God is with you. That he will make something beautiful out of your life. He's doing it right now. Uh, he wants to work in you and he wants to work through you. And as scary as this might be sometimes, it's also exciting. It's like my friend Randall Cunningham. <laughs> and I know this is easy to say, and it's difficult to hear when you're in the midst of a struggle or disappointment. During those times, you know, what are we supposed to do? What do we do? Do we just wait for God? Is he just going to move us like puppets? You know, uh, do we stop planning our lives? You know, where's the balance between what we plan and what God does? How do we figure that out? Those questions aren't easy to, to answer. I'm not planning to tell you exactly uh, what to do. But there are some things that we can do. Like Randall Cunningham, he prepared, he trained, right? He had good habits so that when difficult times came, he was able to respond to those situations. And we should also do that. We also, we can, so we're not going to stop making plans, but we want to be mindful of God's greater plan, and we want to submit to that. So Proverbs 3, 1 to 12, as Sarah read so beautifully for us today, uh, is a reminder of some of those things that we can do. Some of those things that we can practice in season and out of season that will help us you know, when we're feeling disappointed and when we're feeling like things are out of control. Solomon is the author of this proverb, um, and he kind of adopts this father and son motif. You know, and uh, It's a dialogue. Uh, the father imparting wisdom to his son, giving him instructions, but then also re- in, uh, reminding him of the blessing of following these instructions. And there are five main points that I want to walk through as we go through that passage. So just if you, want to, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to, uh, to Proverbs 3. Uh, you can look up the slides. will come up on the screen as well. The first one says this. We're going to look at verses 1 to 4. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. For they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Yet love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. There are actually two wonderful promises in this passage. First thing is, if we can remember to follow God's teachings, then we'll be blessed. Here it says, my son, do not forget my teachings. Solomon's referring ultimately to God's teachings, not his own. It says, keep my commandments in your heart and treasure them. Obey them closely is what he's saying. He says, keep them in your heart. The heart is the center of your person. It's where you're in an Old Testament language. It's where your intellectual, emotional, your moral activity happened. It's the center of who you were. Someone said that the first thing to wander if you're struggling or, or, you know, is the heart. Uh, so when you are disheartened by your circumstances and are tempted to wander, lean into his word, keep your heart centered on God, and you will have a prosperous and peaceful life. That's what it says. Now this, and you're going to see this throughout this whole passage, these are not absolute promises, they're, they're general truths. Um, 
we won't, we're not necessarily promised peace and prosperity perfectly. But if you do follow God's word, you will be prosperous, maybe not financially, but, and you will have internal peace. This is not a health and wealth message today. <laughs> the second promise we look at here is if we are known or marked by God's love and faithfulness, then we will win favor before God and with others. Love and faithfulness, these are words that are used in covenants. They're kind of binding words. God is known for these qualities, for being a loving and uh, and faithful God, an unchanging God. And that's what he wants us to be. He says, keep them around our neck. Write them on the tablet of our heart. Think about like almost like an internal tattoo. We keep those words on your heart, right? Tattoos people get, they want to identify themselves as something. They want people to know when they see it that that's who I am. I'm into this, you know, that's my girlfriend, my wife, whatever it is. Or uh, People have tattoos that reflect something about who they are. Or they, and it's part of their identity. And God wants our, his truth to be part of our identity. He wants it to be in the center of our being. He wants us to internalize his truth in his word. Ultimately, it's really a call to integrity, right? These aren't just words that we speak. This is who we are. He wants us to become so closely t- you know, bound to his words that it's who we are. And the result of doing that is that uh, if we can live this way, is that we'll find favor with God and man. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to love you, right? <laughs> Jesus had enemies, right? They crucified him. And Jesus embodied these things perfectly. But if you are trustworthy, if you're known for being honest and, and loving, then you will generally win favors, the favor of others, and you will please God. But in order to do these things, we need to spend time in God's word, we need to meditate on it, and we need to apply it to our lives every day. If we internalize God's word, then we develop integrity in our character. Chuck Swindoll, I love that guy. He talks a lot about integrity. Here's a quote about honesty and integrity. It says, Honesty has a beautiful and refreshing simplicity about it. No ulterior motives, no hidden meanings, an absence of hypocrisy, duplicity, political games, and verbal superficiality. As honesty and real integrity characterize our lives, there will be no need to manipulate others. When I read that, I think that's the kind of person that I want to be around. That's the kind of person that I want to be, Right? And I see such a freedom in that approach. You know, it's, not, it's not on me. I can just be free and be honest and be, be who I am. And that's what God wants for us. He wants us to be free, to be loving and faithful. When we are that way, when we have that integrity, it affects all areas of our lives. It affects our work, our relationships with coworkers, our neighbors, our family. You know, it affects our, you know, with our wives, our spouse, our kids. And then our church too, right? So when we're dealing with difficult situations in all of those areas, if we have people of integrity, it will impact us. It's something that we can do. We can consistently be, if we're out of a job that we don't really like or we don't like the way things are going, our integrity drives us to be consistent and to be hard workers and to be diligent. In our family, if we have a spouse or uh, kids that aren't following God, our integrity speaks volumes to them, more than our preaching or nagging ever will. When in our church, we don't like the way things are going or heading, Instead of gossiping about it, we can start working at it to change things. So as we make God's word central to our lives, as we internalize it, we begin to live with an integrity that will impact all areas of our lives and the way that we make decisions. Let's take a, take a look at the second portion of the scripture, point two. Let's get, it's verses five and six. 
This is the most familiar part of the passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. To trust is to lie helpless. That's what that word means. It, kinda, it demonstrates the completeness of this trust. Right? It's childlike dependence. It says, with all your heart. This is not half-hearted trust at all. As I was thinking about examples of trust, everything that came to my mind was like dangerous, you know, you know, high heights kind of things. I was thinking about like skydivers, they need to trust their parachutes, right? High wire people, they need to trust that those wires are in. You can't go half-hearted into that, right? Um, trapeze artists, there's one I would love to try. Maybe not. I don't know if anybody wants to try it with me, but <laughs> actually I wouldn't want to do any of these things. But in all these things, you need to trust people, and you need to trust your, your equipment, and you need to trust it completely. There's no halfway here. You have to go right into it. And um, the truth is, there is no such thing as halfway faith, right? You either believe it or you don't. Otherwise, you're not really you're not trusting it. Either you say, that's what it is, and you live by it, right? That's what God is calling us to, to believe and trust in His promises. He says we shouldn't lean on our own understanding. That doesn't mean we don't use our God-given wisdom, but there are times that we want to trust God against conventional wisdom. Scripture is full of examples of this. David and Goliath, and David choosing stones over armor and swords, right? Gideon, allowing his army to be pared down, right? And God's power was demonstrated there. Peter, stepping out of the boat in the midst of all the storm and waves. And there's many, many more. I'm sure you can think of them. God often calls his people to step out and to not listen to conventional wisdom. That doesn't mean we don't use it, but there's times when we need to be ready to step out. For me, often when things go bad, you know, badly in my life, I scramble to find solutions. I want to solve the problem, right? So when things, I fix things or things go well, I kind of go high, you know? But when things start to go bad again, I get really low, <laughs> and I'm up and down. It's like I'm being tossed to and fro by my circumstances, by the world around me. I'm not stable when I'm doing it. When I'm relying on my own strength, I'm not stable. But God is stable. He wants us to acknowledge him and to trust in him. He says if we do that, that he'll make his, our path straight. Right? In all our ways, acknowledge him. Right? He wants us to acknowledge him with all of our lives. It's not just part. I'm going to trust you with this, but not with this. It's everything. And as we do that, he says we'll, he'll make our path straight. Yesterday, our youth went on a hike. Uh, some of us, some of our youth, our leaders wouldn't call it a hike at all. It was a stroll in the park. Some of our youth would call it a major hike. Um, most of it was nice and flat and easy, right? But there were also like some steep, one steep hill and one steep decline, okay? And during those times, you could see the panic and the fear coming to some of our young people. Others, they weren't scared of it at all. But there shows the difference between, you know, the easy road, the straight road. It's just level and easy, and God says he'll make our lives that way. He says he'll, uh, he'll level off those ups and downs. Sorry, I totally lost my spot. <laughs> um, this isn't a promise of easy living for us, right? But it's a promise that God will see you through those difficulties. He's going to be with you so that you can make it through those t- tough times. Faith is the key here as we navigate the broken plays of our lives. We need to find our confidence in him, knowing that he is with us. If you struggle to have faith, pray for it. I say, surround yourself with friends who can encourage you in your faith. Don't isolate yourself. Right? 
So as we navigate life, this is the second point. We want to trust in him completely. The third thing that we can do as we navigate these ups and downs is to cultivate a holy fear of God. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. It says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. The author commands us not to trust, not to think too much of our own wisdom. Right? He says human wisdom is ultimately faulty. True wisdom comes when we recognize God's holiness, his truth, and his power. Verse 7, you could paraphrase it really, and it would be the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? We find that in Proverbs, we find that in Psalms as well, that statement. How does that work? Fear comes when we recognize God's holiness. Right? It makes us keenly aware of our own sinful state. That leads us to repentance. And that makes us want to avoid sin. John Piper says that holy fear results when you see God as so powerful and so holy and so awesome that you would dare not run away from him, but only run to him. Fearing God is yet not yet another requirement. It is the way we do covenant keeping. It is the way we receive Jesus, the way that we come to Jesus. We come reverently, humbly, we come without presumption that we deserve anything or that he owes us anything. We come trembling and we come with a heart that is broken and contrite. No matter where you are in your life and you're up or down, always try to be mindful of who God is and be terrified of what you deserve. Romans 3.23, everybody, a lot of us would have learned that verse in Sunday school. I'll read that to you now. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So many times, that verse is so familiar to me, I skim it over, right? But I think it's important that we pause for those two parts of the verse. The wages of sin is death. We need to recognize ourselves as sinners deserving death, right? Only then does meaning come to the second part of the verse. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we need to live in the tension between recognizing our sinfulness that we are sinners deserving sin, deserving death, and recognizing God's grace in our lives. Right? As we do that, it'll help us make good choices. It'll keep us humble. It'll keep us grateful. And it'll keep us pure. The author tells us this, that as we do this, that it'll bring health and to the body and nourishment to our bones. Once again, please don't understand this as that our life will be smooth. Right? Death and illness are a part of the reality of our existence. However, there might be health benefits from this. Certainly, you'll have a greater sense of peace as you're reconciled before God, with God. The stress of trying to earn your salvation, that's gone. That, that weight is taken off your shoulders. That's a big burden to be lifted. And that's great peace that we can have. So no matter where you are in, God, in life, always remember to recognize God's holiness, to repent, and to be grateful. So I'm just going to reiterate the first three points. Three things, three instructions that Solomon's given that bring us blessing. The first is we need to internalize the word of God and live with integrity. The second is that we need to trust God completely. And the third is that we need to recognize his holiness and repent. We're going to move into the next part of the chapter here, verses 9 and 10. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. What Solomon's saying in in these two verses here is that 
it matters how we use the resources that God gives us. He says that we need to acknowledge God, honor him, acknowledge him as our provider, and to be generous with what he's given us, with our money, our time. And we want to be generous in building God's kingdom. Solomon speaks specifically here about our wealth and the first fruits of our crops. But I think that we can expand this to other resources that we have, like our time, like our talents. Right? We've already seen in this passage as a focus on the heart. God cares about our heart. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus, remember Jesus with the, the, the widow. You know, he sees this widow giving her offering, Mark 12, and she gave everything. And he highlights her and points her out as somebody who's in a great example of giving. God wants us to be like that. He wants his people to be generous with what they have, what he's given them. The result is that he will bless us abundantly. I don't know about barns overflowing. I don't have a barn, and I don't have a vat of wine at home. But um, God will bless us through this. Uh, once again, it's a, I think this is a spiritual blessing more than a physical blessing. Although not necessarily all that way. Even the secular world uh, recognizes the benefits of generosity for a person. And on this one uh, wellness website that I visited, they said this, Generous individuals are personally more fulfilled, happier, and more peaceful within themselves. Not to mention more productive at home and in the workplace. I believe that's true. If you're generous and you're giving, you have that outlook on life, you will be a more fulfilled and happier person. You'll be more, more uh, successful at things. But I think for Christians, it goes beyond just that, that benefit. There's a lot of things. There's a few things that I want to mention here. Recognizing God as our provider in itself is a blessing because it allows us to live with assurance and confidence as God proves himself to us over and over again. Right? It's not all on us. We can rest and, rely, rest and trust in him. Second thing is that in being generous, we learn to manage our resources. And we learn to be content with what God has given us. And I do think God will bless us with more. Um, we see this in the parable of the tenants. The two people that invested their money and used it wisely were given more. So I do think that God, there's a principle there that God will give you more. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, you know, we're not looking for that. That's not what our, our motivation is. I think it can be really hard to be generous, though, when you're going through difficult times. You know, we tend to want to protect what we have when we're struggling. You know, circle the wagons, you know, emotionally or financially. We don't want to risk too much when we feel insecure. But in spite of this, God wants us to be giving people. Just like the poor widow, she gave everything she had. God wants us to use our time to be present with others, even when we're banged up. I'm not just trying to be take, take for yourself for that. But God wants something you to give as well. He doesn't let us off the hook. And he wants us to give financially, even if we're not in the best situation. So the point of that, that passage was that God, God is honored when we're generous. right? And he wants us to be generous with what he's given us. And the last point, verses 11 and 12. It says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, as a father of the son, he delights in. I want you to hear first this. God loves us as our parent. And that God delights in us. That is exactly why he disciplines us. We see this also in Hebrews 12. 
It says, I mean, uh, the author's comparing human and heavenly fathers. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produced a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained in it. And we often refer to child rearing or parenting as bringing up our kids, trying to grow them up. <laughs> um, if we never correct them or allow them to struggle, right? if we always tied their shoes for them, if we always did their chores for them, if we always gave them the junk food they want to eat, then they'll never grow up to be who we want them to be. Right? But we guide them, we teach them, we discipline them so that they'll learn to become independent adults, good citizens, responsible, emotionally healthy people. God, and that's what God wants for us as well. He allows us to go through the difficulties in life as a way of shaping our character so that we will grow spiritually. He has a bigger plan that we are not always mindful of. But he loves us and he wants us to grow. Romans 5 says this, But we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into the hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I would be weary of trying to determine whether God's punishing me for specific sins. Sometimes we get into that. Why did God do this to me because I did that? (laughs) Um, God can punish us for specific sins. We see examples of that in Scripture. But we don't always know when that is. Oftentimes it's natural consequences for our sinful behavior that we have to experience and we have to go through. Sometimes there's no, no sense to it. Things just happen and we don't know why. But God works through those difficult situations anyway to train us up. Our challenge is that we need to recognize God's sovereignty over everything in all circumstances, whether good or bad, to receive our circumstances and to remember that, his, that he loves us, right? that he's not changing, that he's consistent, that he's there and he's trustworthy throughout it. God wants us to accept his discipline as a sign of his love for us. So there's five points, five things that you can do when you're struggling, when your life isn't going great. We can still keep doing things. Randall Cunningham, we practiced. He worked at his skills. He didn't just sit around. And when play broke down on the field, he looked and looked, and he worked and continued to run around looking and scrambled, looking for something to open up. God, doesn't, God wants us to do these things and to be consistent in these things. He wants us to develop these habits so that we can be the same way. Right? I'll give them to you again. Number one, God wants us to internalize his word and to live with integrity. Number two, to trust in him completely. To recognize his holiness, to repent, and to be grateful. He wants us to be generous with the resources he's given us. And he wants us to accept his discipline as a sign of his love for us. Um. As I think about this, you can't help but think about your own disappointments in life. One of the biggest disappointments for Carol and I um, was not going on the mission field back in 2010. We had been, ever since we got married in 1999, it had been in our minds that God was calling us to be missionaries. And we had kind of followed that path in different ways. And uh, it kind of became part of our identity. We're going to be missionaries. We planned our life that way. We weren't going to buy a house. We weren't going to do this. We weren't going to do that. Our mindset was always over there. 
Always going, always going. And then November 2010, based on the advice of our, our, um, our mission group, we had, our daughter had allergies, fish allergies, and they recommended that we don't, don't go to the Philippines. It would be too risky for her. So at that point, we decided that we weren't going to go. We had, Carol and I had different ways of dealing with this. I wish we could say we dealt with it in stride and everything was great, but it was difficult, and we had a lot of questions. What are we going to do now? You know, what is our purpose now? And were we wrong about God's plans in the first place? Can we even hear God's voice? Right? Part of it is, who are we now? Right? That was part of our identity. We were missionaries. We were going to be missionaries. And it had an impact on our marriage as well. It was tough. We were dealing with it in our own ways. It was difficult. It was a, it was a loss of a dream. And to this day, I still don't know exactly why we didn't go. Um, but we can tell you that we've seen God work in our lives. He's been, you know, we've pressed in, we've continued to serve him. We've seen his guiding hand opening new doors for us. Right? We've seen his healing touch in our marriage. I personally have grown spiritually. My faith has increased. And I see that he's working in my life. He's working through my life. Right? And I see that we have a mission to accomplish. That we still need to serve him. So the next time you find yourself in the middle of a broken play, ask God, what are you doing here? (laughs) When you're asking God that question, remember that his perspective is greater than yours. Come to terms with the reality that you're not in control. And remember this verse from Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We need to submit to this plan, to his will. And there's a tremendous freedom in that once you realize it. It doesn't all depend on you. You're working, God's moving you and he's working through you. But I want you to hear this as well from John 10.10. He says, Jesus says this, I have come that you may have life and you may have it to the full. Trust that God is working through your life and he's making something beautiful out of it and that that's the best thing for you. It's allow God to work in and through you. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we can trust in you, that you're always the same. I pray for each one of us here. Each one of us will go through disappointments in our lives. There will be broken plays in our lives. Lord, I just pray that you guide us and keep us in those times, Lord. Help us to be diligent in following you and serving you. So when the struggles come, Lord, we can trust in you, we can rest in you, and know that you are with us. Lord, that you are making something beautiful out of our lives. Amen.